So the children are dismissed. The rest of us, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, verse 34. Very grateful for Dan Curley, a good friend of mine, coming from Virginia to speak about Philippians last week, thinking about love, working well within um, the marriage tune-up. So thankful for those of you who attended that. It was a good Friday and Saturday. But we are in John chapter 8, verse 34 through 59. And if you don't think Jesus says some controversial things, you're going to see him be really controversial right now. As a matter of fact, one of the things that is um, amazing to me is um, I heard one uh, preacher actually say, it seems like Jesus and the Pharisees are on a playground fight at this point. Because they say, your mama, and then Jesus says, no, 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 your daddy. And that's where we are in John chapter 8 this morning. So, hear the word of the Lord, verses 34 through 59. And actually, I'm going to start in verse 34 just to give some context. Uh, I'll be looking at 39 through 59. And remember, whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's declaring something that's very important to us. He's trying to reveal himself to us or reveal us, uh, our true nature, um, to ourselves. So here we go. In verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. You would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, 
of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this is all about family lines. This is about lineage. This is about who is your father? Who is your daddy? Um, My father, whom I was named after, and who apparently I sound very similar to, because uh, when, when I call home or um, people often think that I am my father, you know, our fathers have great imprints on us, but there's confusion about who your father is in this story. My dad was a firefighter uh, in Virginia Beach, and he tells a story that he was uh, a firefighter captain in Virginia Beach, and there was a, a, a kitchen fire that occurred, and he went to this kitchen fire and because my dad was, um, he loves little children, he saw this one little boy, he was about 18 months old, uh, maybe 18, 20 months old. And so while the firefighters are actually doing their work, basically destroying things, because that's what firefighters do when a fire happens in your house, they tear up the kitchen. Um, my dad was playing with his little boy. And um, while the firefighters were, pl- were uh, you know, making sure the fire was extinguished, everybody was okay, my dad was playing with this little boy. And as uh, the firefighters got to leave, my dad goes and he hands the, the little boy back to his mother. And as he's handing it back to his mother, the, the little boy looks at my dad and says, no, daddy, no, daddy, don't put me down. You see, this little boy was confused because he thought my father was his father. And I don't know if you know anything about firefighters, but firefighters, it's basically a frat house is what it is. And they, they looked at my dad and my dad just kind of shook his head and knew that he would never live this down. And the firefighter said, we can't wait to tell Debbie about your alternative family that you have. And I think that they just ribbed him and chided him for a long, long time about that. You see, this little fellow was confused. He wasn't sure who his father was. But in all seriousness, our lineage either does us a benefit or a detriment to us. Think about it. What your parents do, you often do. Where they go, what they value, you value. What they pursue, you pursue. If they love the Lord, you'll see children come, and oftentimes you'll see children um, loving Christ. But what we see here is that these people are confused about their physical lineage and their spiritual lineage. There was a, probably the, the greatest theologian that um, in America ever is a man named Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, who was um, the president of Princeton uh, College, But at the end of the summer of 1874, an unusual gathering took place. It was a remarkably fine weather for September when four or 500 descendants of Jonathan Edwards poured into the resort town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts for a family reunion. They lunched under a great tent provided by Yale University. 
admired memorabilia from the Edwards family. And they got together, and the gathering teamed with professors, business executives, government officials, ministers, and according to one account, women of unusual beauty and force of personality. You gotta wonder if that story was written by a woman. Um, Maybe that woman. The mood of the reunion was expressed by the initiator of the gathering when he said, let God be praised for such a man. You see, um, Edwards and Sarah Edwards had a long lineage, a distinguished lineage. As a, 26 years later in 1900, a man by the name of A.E. Winship did a study of Edwards' descendants. The results have become famous. Winship concluded that from that single union of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Pierpont came 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and a dean of a medical school, and 80 holders of public office, among them three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury. You see, he was saying that there was a a great lineage that occurred through Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. But there's always one, right? There's also another. You see, Jonathan, um, he he had a daughter named Esther, and in 1756, his daughter Esther, um, the daughter of Jonathan, gave birth to a boy. And this is how Esther described her son shortly after his birth. He's very sly and mischievous. Has more sprightliness than Sally, handsomer, but not so good-tempered. And very resolute and requires a good governor to bring him to terms. Such words could be written about many children, but these were written about Aaron Burr, the man who took the life of Alexander Hamilton, and then plotted to crown himself as emperor of Mexico. Aaron Burr was the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. The poet Constance Carrier summed up the man this way, eight lines of clergymen converged to meet in Aaron Burr. Edwards's, Tuthill's, Pierpont's each, a blood and thunderer. Eight lines of clergymen converged, as I've said in Burr, but Aaron was Beelzebub in mocking miniature. Now, just because you have a great spiritual heritage does not assure you that God is your Father in heaven. Now, certainly there are benefits. There are wonderful covenant promises and benefits, but we cannot presume upon our parents' faith as our own. We cannot presume upon our grandparents' faith as our own, but rather we must each trust and believe. You see, the the question before us is not so much who is your physical father, but who is your spiritual father. You see, Jesus, in in John chapter 8, verse even... um, verse 37, when he's talking to the Jews and the Pharisees, he says to them, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, that you are Jews, yet you seek to kill me. You see, your spiritual father in this particular passage is this, either God is your father through faith in the son, or your spiritual father is Satan. 
and you read that and you go, whoa. <laughs> Either you are given to your father, who is the devil, or you are rescued from your spiritual father, the devil, and adopted into the family of God. You see, when Jesus comes, look at what he says. Um, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And notice what they said in verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, we are marked by our fathers. We are marked by our physical fathers, but we are also marked by our spiritual fathers. And what the truth is in this particular section of Scripture is that Abraham was a man of faith. In Genesis chapter 18, notice what it says, And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Now, what Jesus is saying is if you were of your father, Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do as he met three men? And these three men um, are actually, one of those men was a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. So what does Abraham do in Genesis chapter 18 when Jesus shows up pre-incarnate with two angels next to him? He falls down and says, what can I do to serve you? What can I do in order to worship you? But the Jews and the Pharisees did not do that. Because in verse 40, it says, but now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God this is not what Abraham did. You see, Abraham was a man of faith, and he made a great, um, he made a great imprint on all those who followed him. When we think about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs, they trusted and believed in a day that Jesus would come, a Messiah, a Savior would come, and he would begin to put all things that were broken back together. But the Jews wanted to not worship Jesus, but wanted to seek his death. Now in verse 41, they say, you are doing the works of your, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, or, you know, essentially, um, there's confusion now, and they're saying, what are you talking about? And then, verse 41, they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. So rather than deal with the issue that Jesus is speaking about, they go after his mother, they go after his character, and they, they try to um, discredit Jesus and what he has to say. It is amazing what unbelieving men will do. A.W. Pink says, unbelieving men will give credence to the most grotesque absurdities, but will regard with skepticism what come to him with a thousand fully authenticated credentials. 
Some will believe that there are no such things as sin and death. Some will believe that instead of being the descendants of a fallen Adam, they are offspring of evolving apes. Some believe they have no souls and that death ends all. Others imagine that they can purchase heaven with their own works. Oh, the blindness and madness of unbelief. It is startling when we read in John chapter 8 the, co- the conflict between the Jews and Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, if you will believe, again, if you will believe in me, you will never die. Some of the um, thoughts with regard to the, the truly, truly statements that we read in the Gospel of John, uh, let me just say, um, go over a couple of, of them. You know, in, in John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In in John chapter 5, he says, truly, truly, verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Um. In John chapter 6, verse 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, what he's saying there is that if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. If you believe in me, you will be adopted into the family of God. And you will no longer be under the um, chains and shackles of the devil, but rather you will actually be free, free indeed. And that's, that's what we read about in the earlier parts of John chapter 8, when, he, when Jesus is telling them, telling the Jews that you are enslaved to your sin, and that your father is the devil, and that the only way that you can break free from his chains and shackles is if you believe in the Son, and if you believe in the Son, the Son will set you free, and you will be free indeed, free from the power of sin free from the penalty of sin, free from the fear of man, free from, the, um, free from the, the fear of death, because death will be broken. And then you'll also be free forever. All of those things we talked about several weeks ago. And what Jesus is doing is he's combating the Pharisees at this point. And again, at this point, the Pharisees don't have anything to say But in verse 43, Jesus says this to him, and this is something that I think we struggle with when he says, why do you not understand what I say? Isn't that what we often think about when we see our loved ones and those that we care about when they don't believe? Why is it that they don't believe? Why is it that they believe in something other than Jesus? And he says, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Now that's an allusion to Genesis chapter three, when sin entered into the world and death entered into the world, when Satan uh, tricked Adam and Eve and, and, and lied to them and said, if you will eat of this fruit, you will become like God. You will know what he knows. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth 
because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So what we, what we recognize from this particular passage is that Satan, who is a fallen archangel, who is powerful, who is cunning, who is deceptive, what he's trying to do is actually separate people from abiding and trusting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will use all manner at his disposal, whether it's fear of persecution or whether it is um, the allurements of the world. He will try to dissuade us from believing. He will try to distract us with the shiny objects of this world so that you do not get connected to, to the Father. I mean, I mean let's, let's face it. How many of us get um, distracted in this world from pursuing Jesus and pursuing our Father and reading our Bibles by pursuing the world or being distracted by the world? How many of you have thought, you know, I'm going to read my Bible today, and then all of a sudden an email goes off or a text message goes off, or there's something else that you have to do, or there's something else that you want to buy, or there's something else that you just feel like is in your way? And every time that happens, Satan is trying to dissuade you, to distract you, to discourage you from being in the Word of God, because he is the father of lies. And what he wants you to believe is that the world, apart from Christ, will give you everything that you need, that it will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And what Jesus says is, the only thing that will satisfy your deepest longings is a relationship with me. Um, there's a devotional I use from time to time, and even today's, um, it's called Take Heart Daily Devotions to Deepen Your Faith. It's written by a man named David Pallison, who's now with Jesus. And he was talking about this today. This is today's devotional. He says, who are you really? What defines you? You're not defined by your role in your family configuration, whether you are unmarried or married, whether you have children or not. You're not defined by your job or your money. You're not defined by your friendships. You're not defined by your local church or your denomination. You're not defined by your ethnic background. If you were defined by these things, you'd be cursed if you had to retire, a wreck if your best friend betrayed you, in despair if there was a split in your congregation, or despondent if your ethnic background was despised and mocked. You're defined by your relationship with the living God. Getting that straight is the one thing that lets you actually engage rightly with all of these other roles, embracing the joys and positives and the good things and the blessings. And it lets you face whatever evils and darkness is there. Whatever your family history, whatever your current job, whatever your current friendship situation, role, whatever the future brings in gains or losses, you must get who you are straight. You belong to Jesus Christ if you believe and trust him. What do we believe? You see, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what Jesus is saying, these children of wrath, these children of Satan, these children of the devil to the Pharisees, he's saying, believe in me. Now, in verse 51 of John chapter 8, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you believe in Jesus and keep his word, you will never see death. Now, at this point, you know, the Jews and Jesus are going back and forth, right? And I want to show you a place um, that Jesus says something that is just extraordinary and that we can never use in our own sense of apologetics or evangelism. Jesus says in verse 46, which of you, which one of you convicts me of sin? Brothers and sisters, don't try to use that one. When you're sharing your faith with other people, don't say, I dare you to find any sin in my life. Only Jesus can do that. And yet, rather than actually bringing a charge against Jesus, they answered him and they basically said, you know, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, they go from speculating about Jesus's mother to just basically casting dispersions and calling him names. They don't deal with the issue of, they're not saying, well, Jesus, you're in sin because of, because they couldn't find sin in Jesus, but rather they say, you're a Samaritan. Now, in that culture, in that day, that is saying, um, that's basically a curse or a slur, an ethnic slur that a Jew would call another Jew a Samaritan. And then they say he has a demon. Now, one of the things that we see in Jesus is this idea of trusting in him. Now in verse 21, or 51, excuse me, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So what is it? How do we know who our spiritual father is? And what do we believe about Jesus? Um, Because in Galatians, we read that we are children of God through faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 25, it says this, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You see, faith, if your faith is in Jesus, J.C. Ryle says, faith unites the sinner to the Son of God and makes him one of his members. Faith makes him one of those in whom the Father sees no spot and is well pleased. Faith marries him to the beloved Son of God and entitles him to be reckoned among the sons. Faith gives him fellowship with the Father and the Son. Faith grafts him into the Father's family and opens up to him a room in the Father's house. Faith gives him life instead of death and makes him a son instead of a servant. Show me a man who has this faith and whatever be his church or denomination, I say that he is a son of God. 
want you to think about that in the, in the, in the idea of your, your life. Who and what defines you? Are you a son of God or a daughter of God? By faith, we become children of God, adopted into his family. That's a beautiful truth and a beautiful promise. You see, most of the time, what religions of the world will say is that you must do something in order to garner God's favor. But Christianity is different. It says one actually did already do all the things that you were supposed to do. His name was Jesus. And all you have to do is believe in him. There's a a striking passage um, also in John chapter 8. We're in the midst of Jesus saying, really a a controversial statement in, in verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now the Jews said, now we know you have a demon. Our father Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And then in verse 53, just for a second, they start to get it. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus you know, says, essentially, I am greater than they are. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me of whom to say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. And in verse 56, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, that's a controversial statement for Jesus to make. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Now, is that the day of the Lord? What does that mean that he rejoiced? Um, Jesus is essentially saying, and, and commentators have said this, it could be one of three things. It could be that Abraham saw Jesus' day through the promises of God that were given to him, in the sense that in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, Abraham looking forward to the day when one of his uh, line would actually bring all things and restore all things. It could be that through Abraham's life, he saw the types of individuals that would model who Jesus is. In Genesis chapter 14, after a war, um, Abraham actually gave a tenth of all that he plundered to a man named Melchizedek, who is the great priest king, king of Salem. And this is a pre-shadow or a, a type of Jesus who would come and be not only the great prophet, priest, but also the king. It could be that he's talking about Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham rejoiced when he was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, but rejoicing in the fact that God provided a substitute. In Genesis chapter 22, a ram caught in a thicket, so that rather than being sacrificing his own son, he was actually able to have a a substitution. Is that what he's talking about? That he rejoiced in the day that God provided a substitution? Or it could be that he was referring to a personal encounter in Genesis chapter 18 when Abraham met the pre-incarnate Jesus at the Oaks of Mamre. Three angelic visitors came to him, and it is generally understood that one was Jesus himself. And what the Jews are saying is, we don't have a problem with you talking about how Abraham rejoiced and that he saw it and was glad, 
but rather we have a problem saying that you have actually seen Abraham. They said, you're not 50 years old, and 50 years old is the day of retirement, really, for Jews then. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and again, 25 times in the Gospel of John, when you hear truly, truly, and Jesus is revealing something about himself, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that's not a typical I am statement that we see within John, but what Jesus is saying is, back in Exodus 3, when God revealed himself to Moses and gave his covenant name, gave his name to Moses, and he says, Yahweh, he's saying, I am that I am. And what Jesus is saying is, before Abraham was, I am. And if you were like Abraham, you would fall down before me and worship. And all you have to do is believe and I will welcome you into my kingdom. But again, the Jews did not respond in a way that was like Abraham. They responded at the very end in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, the thing I want you to think about is this. Who's your father? You know, one of the things, um, I'll conclude with this because uh, I think it's, it's, it's a cute story, and we see this happening again and again. If you go back to the nursery um, after the worship service or after a Wednesday night supper, and um, you're around some, some people picking up their kids, um, I don't know if you know this or not, but sometimes it can become a little chaotic back there. Just a bit. I mean, not as chaotic as like the gym with balls flying, but still chaotic, right? So if you're back there and there are times when you'll pick up you know, the ones and the twos and sometimes those rooms are full of kids and, you'll, and the parents will put those children down. And, and one of the things that I love is seeing these little kids run around. Sometimes a child will step away from their parent and they'll then come back. And there are occasions which um, a small child, not my own child, will actually come and grab my leg thinking that I am their father, Right? And what happens is they will then hear their, their father say something and they will, or they're grabbing onto a leg and they look up and they see their father is speaking and they are not attached to the right father. And then they look up and they have to look at me and they become very scared. And then they go run to their father or to their mother. I mean, that's what small children do. We get confused. We find a leg, because really most men look about the same from the waist down. And they're just looking for a leg to hold on to. Quite frankly, I think that's what we're all doing. I think we're all looking for our father's leg that we can grasp onto. Because in, in many ways, we're like small children. Looking for comfort, looking for protection, looking for love. The question is for us, when you look up, is it your Father in heaven that you are attached to? Or is it the Father of lies who was a murderer from the beginning? So what I'm asking you to do is to look up from what you're grabbing onto. Who are you following? Who are you becoming more like? Yeah, you're going to become like your Father, right? 
You're going to become like your father. There's an imprint that, that occurs. I mean, you're going to love what he loves. You're going to hate what he hates. I mean, some of you wonder why I'm a Yankees fan. And it's not because I grew up in New York. It's because my dad was a Yankees fan. And he made it clear that if I wanted to remain within the family, <laughs> I too needed to be a Yankees fan. And, and I, was, I was good with that. I was, uh, you know, the Yankees have won a bunch recently in the last like 20, 25 years. He also uh, was adamant about us becoming Redskins fans, which at this point I have now rejected because they're terrible. But my own son has not yet rejected that. And so I hope that one day he might reject the foolishness of his grandfather and brother and cousins and everybody else. Just like small children, make sure that you're latched onto our Father in heaven rather than the one who is a murderer and a liar. Now, in front of us today is the communion table. And it's a good table because it reminds us that Jesus laid down his life so that we might live. The communion table reminds us of the sacrifice of atonement. It reminds us that Abraham saw a day when God provided in Genesis chapter 22, he provided a ram so that his own son might not die. This table represents um, Jesus' penal substitutionary atonement for you. What that means is he takes the penalty for your sins and he substitutes himself. Now, why did he have to do that? Because God is a holy God, God is a righteous God, God is a just God, and he must punish sin. And all of us are sinners. None of us can use the line of Jesus, um, just see if there's any sin within me. Because if you look deep within me, we, we transgress God's law and thought, word, and deed every day. And we need a substitute. We need a sacrifice so that we might be right with God. You see, if God did not require punishment for sin, he would not be a just God. He would not be a holy God. And the reality is every sin that you've ever committed in your life must be punished. But the good news of the gospel is the love of God, which manifests and flowed forth from heaven, is that Jesus came to take that penalty for us. And when he takes that penalty and we trust and believe, we are reconciled to God the Father and no longer enemies of God or slaves of our father the devil, but rather we become children of God. This bread represents his body broken for you. This cup represents, uh, or this juice represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him. If God is your father, then this table is a family table. If you've trusted and believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then he invites you to come. If you're not sure about who Jesus is, then I would say don't partake of these elements. If you're unsure about what you believe about Jesus, go talk to an elder. We have several elders every week that are here that they can talk with you about your faith, about your struggles. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for these elements for they remind us of our need of Jesus. Father, in, in your word in Corinthians, it says that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, there will be a day when we do not celebrate communion. That will be at the great wedding feast of the Lamb. But Father, until then, as we take these elements, Father, remind us of our need of Jesus. Remind us of your love. Remind us of your holiness. 
remind us that all of our sins are washed away because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, thank you that these elements will always remain bread and they will always remain juice, but Father, you pour forth spiritual grace upon us every time we receive them. Father, you say that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are yours. And Father, what you own, what you have will never be taken. Father, in John 10, when we think about being held by Jesus and then being held by you, Father, the promise of the double lock of our salvation brings us great comfort. So Father, as we come to celebrate communion, Father, may we rejoice and Father, might we increase our faith. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.